Well, good morning to you all. Very nice to be here. Thank God for prayer. That we can have that freedom to bring our requests to the Lord. The understanding and the faith and the confidence that He hears. So much of our prayer seems to be toward the needs in our life related to healing. Uh, physical healing. And I had to think where uh, it says that by his stripes we are healed. And we take that to mean spiritual healing, but I think the realization among uh, many believers in our day is that it pertains to our physical bodies as well. By his stripes we are healed. I don't understand the mystery of that, but it's true. And we can count on that as a blessing from God on our lives. We've already received a lot of um, good thoughts from our Sunday school lesson, at least here in this auditorium, where Paul had the confidence that that work would continue. We don't have to look at each other in suspicion. I think sometimes that's our tendency among Christians. At least when I was younger, it's like, does that person really know what it's about? Is he really doing the right thing, or is it just all um, an outward show? Well, in a sense, we, we want our lives and, and the truth and Christ living in us to be an outward demonstration. Would men know that you live for Jesus, right? That's the question. Can they tell that? And yet Paul, in that confidence, he prayed for the people. He prayed continually, almost unceasingly for them. And so we don't just say, well, I think something's going to turn out good, so let it there. No, we put ourselves into it. We pray into that to bring it about, to make it. A, um, an act of faith and partnership with God. So I sense that here this morning, that we're, we're not living for Christ just here while we're together on a Sunday morning. But it's part of our experience out there with, with others, outside these walls. You know, there's a, uh, there's a tendency I've seen Maybe it's not a tendency, but it's a thought I've had concerning how we act when we go to church. We act a certain way. And it's kind of like a dairy parlor where you have the cows come in and you can do some stuff to the cows and they let you do that. And they submit to certain things that they wouldn't submit to out in the pasture. You know, they're, Somehow they kind of take on a new spirit when they're in that parlor, in that setting. Now I've thought of you know, we shouldn't be like that as Christians. When we're in, in the church, we have a tendency to maybe uh, cool it down a little bit and be who we think we should be. But let that carry itself out into the realities of the world. Make it a part of our lives. When we uh, go to different churches, sometimes I associate uh, a church with a certain person. And I don't see Raymond here today, but I... 
think of Raymond when I think of Mount Hermon. And it was years ago when I was a young boy, Brother Raymond gave a, a talk at Bank Church on witnessing. And um, I had to think of this in relation to, would men know that you've been with Jesus? And one of the things he said was the importance of sharing the gospel with others one-on-one or in other settings is to have a smile on your face. To smile. And maybe we don't feel like smiling. But I think when we have the joy of the Lord, that smile will be there. And it goes a long way. The other thing he said is to have an open Bible when you're speaking with somebody. There's some power and strength in just having the open word there to read from. That's a privilege we have at all times. But in Raymond's mind, it went a long way to be able to uh, share the gospel, to have that authority in front of you. Yes, we have it in our heart, but it's also the written word of God. I invite you this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 22. I noticed something here that wasn't really part of my message, but I think one of the, one of the duties of a minister is, is to share what the Lord has on your heart. Maybe things that come up later. And I thought of uh, this passage where David was, I guess he was a little bit on the run. Verse 1, it says, He departed thence and escaped to the cave Adullam. And when his brethren and his, all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. So it seems like David, even in his, in his state of, of running from Saul, he still had a following. He still had some influence. And there were those that looked up to him. And verse 2 says, Everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented, gathered themselves unto him. And he became a captain over them. So, I began to think of how things are allegories. These things are an allegory says in Galatians 4.24. And when I saw that word captain, I thought of how Jesus is the captain of our salvation in Hebrews. David's spoken here of a captain. And notice who came to them. Doesn't this reflect a little bit those that come to Jesus? Is David a type of Jesus here? Those that were in distress, in debt. We are indebted in a spiritual sense. And when we sense that spiritual need, there's a sense in which we're discontent. Anyway, I just saw that with that. And verse 3, it says, David went thence to Mizpah of Moab, and he said unto the king of Moab, Let my father and my mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you till I know what God will do for me. Till I know what God will do for me. I, I thought on that and how that we don't always find ourselves where we're truly felt like we have direction in life or uh, that God has us exactly where he wants us. And maybe there's that spirit of expectancy 
an anticipation that God will do more for us. Well, we see that in David here. And it reflects, I think, patience. It reflects a dependency on the Lord. So I know what God will do for me. And there may be uh, seasons of our life where that is where we find ourselves. <clears throat> we, um, we as preachers, we, I guess our job is to speak. And I thought of that, you know, because I'm not, in myself, I'm not one to, to really do that, to, to be the one to do the talking. But since it's my job, I guess I'll have to kind of take that up. And I have to start seeing the value in it, because I think there is value in it. Um, I used to think it'd be nice to be in a Quaker's meeting, where you just go to church and not a whole lot is done. And you sit there and meditate, and it's quiet, and maybe there's some value in that at times. But then I saw where in the book of Acts it says there was a Judas and a Silas. Now this was not, this was a good Judas. They themselves being prophets, they went and exhorted the brethren and confirmed the brethren with many words. There is a place to speak and to say things. And I thought of that as an encouragement to us. But God's word is not just in word. God's power comes to us in more than just words. There's that thought as well. That um, it says the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. You know, we can talk a lot, but unless there's the power behind it. And so I thought, well, that's another aspect to this. What, what does that, what does that meant to uh, be? for how we speak, what we say. And of course, unless the power of the Holy Spirit is there, and maybe the passion in our lives and the, and the, uh, the fervency of spirit that we need to have is important too. It's not just about words. Because at some point our words will, will cease, they will leave off. And the power and the truth of what is said needs to continue. It needs to be manifest and, and take effect. Because we're not just about good ideas and theories. We want results. We want tangible demonstrations of power and authority from God. Whether it's in the spiritual realm, and some of that you don't see, but uh, I believe God often shows himself strong in the physical world. And that is what the world, I think, is looking for, a demonstration of the power of God. So they can see that we have a connection with something outside of ourselves. It's not just us. It's something bigger than us. And yet it is something accessible to us. And we can operate and live our lives and have that benefit and that goodness from God. Is not that indeed what attracts people to the kingdom of God? Yes, it's, it's mighty in word, but it's also in deed and in truth. <clears throat> and my thought is, if we don't introduce the world, if we can't 
show them this power to where they want it for themselves, more than likely they'll find their power and their source of strength from somewhere else, from a counterfeit power. Because not all signs and wonders are of God. Not all of them come from the camp of the righteous, I should say that, you know, yes, God is sovereign over a lot of these things. But it seems like the devil often has a way to tap into that uh, power of God and to deceive people with, with a wrong application of that power. In Matthew 24, I notice where the Lord says, there shall arise false Christs, false prophets, who shall show great signs and wonders in order to deceive, and many will be deceived. In Revelation 13, 13, it talks about uh, some personalities there. The, it talks about the beast, the false prophet, the antichrist. And out of, the, out of that um, group, one of, of some of those personalities comes the ability to call down fire from heaven and deceive them that dwell on the earth. So I think there is a deception that is very likely to afflict the saints in the latter days. Whether it's the church, whether it's another group of people, another time, a place, how you all put that together, Jesus did warn against being deceived. And when we see what we might say is just uh, a false power, a false healing even. It, it, shouldn't, it should discourage us from the realization that counterfeit things usually are there because there is something real. So let's not just count all of it bad because nobody counterfeits something that's not worth something. So we need the real thing and we need to strive for that. But I believe some of these things require discernment will come upon the people of God and to test them in a sense, to see if are we rooted and grounded in the faith of God's word. And my hope is in uh, Luke 21. So you have Luke 21, you have Matthew 24. Both of them are similar in that Jesus outlines some of the things in the last days. But in Luke 21, 36, he gives us uh, something I think is, is just great. Concerning all these things, he says, Watch ye therefore and pray always, that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. That's a duty we have. That's a call we have to pray into that. Being counted worthy to escape, you say, well, of course that means that we have salvation. And I believe that's included in that. It's certainly part of the package, but it seems like he was speaking to us as Christians to just have that, uh, even though we're saved, I think it's a duty to continue to pray that prayer. 
I know a good brother, friend of mine, that's going on to his reward. Often in his prayers, he would, he would routinely just say that, to, to pray that we would be able, counted worthy to escape those things. I'd like to look now at Psalms 19, verse 13. Psalms 19, I'll read verses 12 through 14. I'm trying to put some thoughts together in my mind and, and tie some of this stuff together. But it talks here about understanding ourselves. Verse 12, who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. I see two categories of sins here. One is what he calls a hidden sin or a secret thought. Now maybe you think that refers to something that we are harboring, that we know that's there. But as I studied that and I saw the commentary concerning that verse, it, it means more the idea of things that happen that we aren't aware of just because we're human, just because we walk in our humanity with the fallen nature. Yes, it's crucified, but that crucified self is still alive. That's why crucifixion is such a, an apt illustration of our old man, of our flesh, because as I understand, a person that's crucified is still alive. They can remain alive for days, from what I've heard. Um, they still exist. It's still there. And we understand that concerning our ability to fall. And in Christ, sometimes we make those mistakes. We call them mistakes. Um, often, even when they were intentional. But there's another category of of sin here, it's called presumptuous sins, that is in the category more of, of a willful sin. One we do with our eyes open, we realize what's going on. Let them not have dominion over me. It doesn't mean it ever happens. I think the idea of something that has dominion over you is different than... than um, than when it just crops up every once in a while, when it comes to pass. Because we do sin sometimes, I think, in both of these categories, presumptuously and secretly, or unknown thoughts that come before us. But the thought I want to, to move into here is this thing of presumption, presuming on God. Um, thinking we know, thinking we can anticipate all the things that God is or what he is going to do, his every response to us and his reactions to us. We don't always know um, what the Lord will do because he is so great and high and holy. It's, it's a little bit like exploring the universe. We learn some things. We can see what's visible, and the scope 
of the created world. But in that knowledge, we begin to understand that the more we learn, the less we know. And I think it's that way with the Lord. And I saw in our, um, in my recent studies of Scripture, an attribute of God, a characteristic of God that I would like to uh, explore a little bit this morning as we have time. Psalms 11, 111 verse 2 says, The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. The implication there is that in in Scripture, um, we may think we know our Bibles. It's good to commit it to memory and to, to have that. But there remains a continual seeking out of the things of Scripture and a searching out the things of God. Do we ever really come to the end of that? I don't think we do. Another thing I've thought of in relation to our view of God is you've heard how that some would say the way we look at God is shaped a lot by our earthly fathers, by the, by the relation we had with our earthly fathers is how we view God. And I think that can be the truth. Uh, it's, um, and that's okay, you know, as long as we had a good father, I guess. But, you know, it's, um, it's probably not a good, good thing to, to let that be the only deciding or the total deciding factor about how we view God the Father in heaven. But rather that we let God's word and his spirit shape our view of the Lord. And I noticed in the Bible a little while back that um, there, there was a notable way that stood out to me about how some of the godly men in the Bible related to the Lord. Um, in which I, I would just call this an uncertainty factor. An uncertainty factor about the Lord and about what he's going to do. And not to presume unduly upon the Lord. It doesn't mean we can't have a sure foundation in our faith. It doesn't mean we, we, our hope and our faith cannot be sure and steadfast in our mind. But I think of how God presented himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. I invite you to Exodus chapter 3. It talks about Moses being there in the wilderness where God showed himself to to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. So I'm just going to relate that experience of Moses to He saw something that God was involved in. He saw a power of God demonstrated. And let's apply that to maybe a time in our life where we recognized the hand of God and we saw the hand of God and we said, I want more of that. And we approached it. 
we were curious. We wanted to experience, to see what this was about. And it's interesting here in verse 4, it says, And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush, and he said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. It is when God saw that Moses responded as he did, he approached that bush. I'm not sure why, you know, if Moses really had any other choice. He was, he, out of natural curiosity, he did that. But it's like when God saw that response. And when God sees our response, he, he is making evaluations concerning how we respond to the things he presents to us. I think there could be a, a thought in that. And it illustrates how we are to seek out God. I think we do search him, but uh, there's an aspect to where he becomes unapproachable be, because of his glory. It's, a fire is that way. You know, a fire is attractive. It provides heat. It is something we desire. To a point. But if we get too close to that fire, what happens? It's, it's too much. It's too intense. And we have uh, illustrations in, in Scripture where, where men got too close to God. Now you say, how can that be? Doesn't God want us all that we can do to get near Him? And yes, that is true. But in... Uh, 1 Timothy 6, 16, you don't have to turn to this, but speaking of God, it says, Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. And so there is that unapproachable aspect to God. Now certainly we say, well, while we're in this life, yes, that's true. And then in the next life, we will be clothed with ability to um, withstand the presence of God in a more sure way. Um, but we don't always know how God's going to present himself to us in our experiences and in our world, in the physical world. And so I, I just want to start with a couple examples here. I don't want to take too long this morning, but... 2 Samuel 12, 22. 2 Samuel 12, 22. We notice something in the life of David here. Where he had that relationship with Bathsheba. He sinned against the Lord. Adultery, murder. Um, out of that came a child. Um, I'm sorry. Chapter 16. Well, I think I'm getting mixed up here a little bit. I think I want chapter 12 and then 16. So, a child that the prophet 
came to the prophet Nathan came to David and said, this child's going to die. As part of the consequence, this child will die. What did David do? Verse 16, I mean, 2 Samuel 12, verse 16. He, he besought God. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. So even after the prophecy where God said a thing was going to be a certain way, what do we see in the heart of David? He prayed, he fasted, he besought God. And the elders of the house noticed this, and they saw his passion and the fact that he would not raise up uh, from, from the earth. And they said, you know, what, what is this? Because now the child has died. David is this way when the child was yet alive. What's he going to do when the child dies? But to their surprise, when the child did die, David rose up. Uh, he washed himself. He anointed his face. And he became accepting of that judgment of God. And so these servants asked him, this was a strange reaction, they thought. And David's explanation was this. He said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? I'd like to think about that a little bit and how we esteem God. He said, who can tell? Now, there were instances in Scripture where God said a thing was going to be a certain way. And because the people repented and changed, he reversed that. And God has the authority to do that. David recognized that. He prayed into that, but he was accepting of the consequences of that. Now, chapter 16. This was a, another story where David was on his way somewhere in this... <coughs> A fellow was throwing stones at him. He was casting stones at David there in verse 6. Reproaching David. Um, just being rebellious. Cursing David, it says. And one of David's servants said, you want me to just go up there and take care of this guy, lop his head off, be done with him? I think they had the power to do that. Notice what David says. Let him alone, verse 11, and let him curse, for the Lord hath bidden him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will requite me good, requite me good for his cursing this day. Notice what David said. He, he said, let the Lord look down on this situation. Let him see this cursing that is taking place. Perhaps the Lord has even bid this guy to do it. Who am I to say? It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction. If I had a title for the message today, I think it would be, it may be. It may be. We don't always know, do we? What the Lord's going to do. Second Kings 19. Sennacherib came against Judah. 
to threaten the cities of Judah to take them. And this Sennacherib uh, came against Hezekiah, the king of Judah. Hezekiah was a righteous king. And he sent a messenger to mock and to make fun of Hezekiah. And this is the words of Hezekiah. We know this story pretty good, so I'm just not going to detail it all. But verse 3, Hezekiah said this, is a day of trouble and of rebuke and blasphemy, for the children are come to the birth and there is not strength to bring forth. It may be the Lord thy God will hear all the words of, Reb- of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, his master, has sent to reproach the living God and will reprove the words which the Lord thy God hath heard. Wherefore, let him lift up thy prayer for the remnant that are left. You know, prayer, that's what we did this morning. We pray, in a sense, to to sway the heart of God, do we not? Isn't that its purpose? Maybe that should be our attitude, that it may be God will hear our prayer. We know he does. But that tells me, when we have that attitude, it may be, it's a person that has confidence in, in a God that hears and a God that actually sees things and hears things and responds. He is not a robot. God sees and hears and makes evaluations concerning our lot in this life and our responses to Him. You know, sometimes I think we get the attitude that life is just a script and it's going to happen a certain way. And... You know, we have a fatalistic approach to life. It's not true. It's not true. Now, in a sense, God is sovereign. <clears throat> but I think we, as, as a people of God, we are to look at a difficult thing or a situation and say, God sees this. Let's hope in his mercy. In fact, let's show it to God. Let's bring it to the Lord. Let's show him the problem we are having. And furthermore, let's pray into that and let's trust in a God who can respond in the reality of our affairs. And and Hezekiah prays quite a prayer there in verses 15 through 16. I'm not going to read that because I had a couple other references to get to here this morning. Let's move on through the Old Testament to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel interpreted the the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. Now he remembers this dream. He's doing a little better now because the first time he didn't even know what the dream was. And so Daniel interprets this dream and it has to do with Nebuchadnezzar falling from the grace of God and being changed into uh, an animal. He'll be driven out. Daniel had to give him that message and that interpretation which when you're in the presence of a king and you're telling the king bad news, that's not always easy to do. So at the end of this, in verse 27, here's where I want to focus on. Daniel gives the king some advice concerning 
this interpretation. He says, Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness and thy iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. So you see Daniel interpreting this dream as given from the Lord concerning a thing that would happen. It was pronounced to happen. But Daniel's advice was to the king, seek righteousness. Seek the favor of God. Change your ways. It may be a lengthening of that tranquility. There's a possibility. There's a peradventure that this could happen. Because of God. And because of who he is. And because God hears our prayer. Joel chapter 2. 12 through 14. Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me. This is the call of God. With all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. And rend your heart and not your garments. Turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God? Who knoweth? That's a valid question. That's a question that's on our minds. Will God hear my prayer? Will he respond? That is how God presents himself to us. So, maybe one more here. Zephaniah 2, 1 through 3. There's a whole list of these in the Bible. It wouldn't be time to bring them all out here this morning. Zephaniah 2, verse 3, it says, Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness. Seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Amos 5, 14 and 15, very similar. Seek good and not evil, that ye may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you. As ye have spoken, hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. It may be, there you have those words again, it may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. I had to think of Jonah. Went and preached, didn't say much. He said, in 40 days Nineveh shall be overthrown. And when the king of Nineveh heard that, the king went out and actually did a little better job of preaching than Jonah did. (laughs) The king of Nineveh, he adds some depth to the message of Jonah. He said, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Why wasn't Jonah saying this? Now we don't know for sure, maybe he did. It's not recorded, but he said, let every, <clears throat> everyone from his evil way turn and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that would perish not? And God did turn away. 
God turned away his anger. I see that as an encouragement to us, as an opportunity in our prayer to think of God in that way that he hears us. And not, not that it's such a profound thing, we know that. And I'm not suggesting our, our salvation is, is not a sure part of our experience. But let's not become loose or careless or presumptuous in our attitude before the Lord. Because there's a real sense in which we stake our well-being and our future and our hope in His sovereignty. In His sovereignty. And I think it's helpful to learn of God, to learn who He is and to see God in those ways because the more we see God, I think the more it takes care of the problems that come up in our life, the things that could, the little foxes that spoil the land. When we see the glory of God and we see those experiences of people that did, somehow they all suddenly knew how to, how to behave real quick. And the same is true in our life, I think. That's the power and the strength we want to operate from. By looking up. Not by looking down. First Peter 4.19 says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their soul to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. God created us. He created the new creature that is us. He can preserve that blameless unto the end. Spirit, soul, and body. Let's trust him in those avenues of our life where we need prayer and where we need his continual strength and power. I hope this will be an encouragement to us all here this morning. We ask our song leader to lead us in a song.